You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Charles Strauss is the author of Singularity Sky, Accelerando, The Family Trade, The Hidden Family, and The Clan Corporate. His newest novel is Glass House. Welcome to the program, Charles. Hi. Charlie, let's talk a little bit about the different genres that you juggle. You've written science fiction, you've written horror, and you've written uh, fantasy. But I think beneath all of those, there's one genre that you have in common that all these share, which is your love of crime fiction and espionage fiction. So tell us about the hidden genre that underlies all your genre fiction. Uh, Damn, I've been rumbled at last. Somebody had to figure out what I was into. As it actually happens, I'm working on a science fiction novel right now, which I haven't finished yet. It's due for publication next year called Halting State. And funnily enough, it brings all those themes out because it is actually a near-future crime and espionage thriller. So that should be a little bit more obvious as to where I'm coming from. Genre as a category is a bit misleading. It's very much a marketing category, a label that's pinned on the books I write by the editors and the sales departments of the publishers who buy them. In reality, what I write is just basically me playing with different types of ideas. An interest in secret histories and espionage and crime does actually underlie a lot of the stuff I do, as does an interest in the implications of economics and social change. But yes, I am, to some extent, uh, a crime and uh, espionage writer. I suspect I'd be quite happy trying to write spy thrillers as opposed to uh, science fiction and fantasy. What you do is very interesting because you overlay big ideas from a different genres, for example, science fiction in Accelerando and in Iron Sunrise. You overlay some really big and very intriguing science fiction concepts on top of some plots that read like something out of Len Dayton or Ian Fleming. So tell me, do you read Ian Fleming and Len Dayton? Absolutely. I'm currently reading my way through the canon of a different British spy author, Anthony Price, who is unjustly neglected these days. He stopped writing around 1989. I am very familiar with Len Dayton, Ian Fleming, and quite a few of the others. In fact, the Atrocity Archives was fairly self-consciously a Len Dayton pastiche, Len Dayton versus Lovecraftian horrors. And the forthcoming sequel, The Jennifer Morgue, which is my next novel in print, is very much an Ian Fleming pastiche. Michael Price, which of his books should we read? Anthony Price. Anthony Price, I'm sorry. It's hard to say which you should read, but I would suggest possibly starting at the very beginning with... Sorry, I've gone a blank on the title. What I should say is he has a series, effectively, of about 20 thrillers, spanning a period of roughly 40 years. The great British spy thriller, as, as was, following a group of protagonists through a British organisation, which is rather nameless, actually, through the duration of the Cold War. You use some really interesting language, and one of the things I would like to get at is the way you use technical jargon and, and jazz it up to so it almost seems like a freeform uh, beat jazz. I have a background in computing, as well as the uh, wide reading around the uh, spy and espionage field, and it's interesting how... The computing field has seen very rapid technological change. Whenever you invent something new, you have to invent words to describe it. And the computing field is 
fairly notorious for this. They never invent a new product if they have to pin a new name on it. Go back five years, nobody would have any idea what an iPod was or what it did. These days it's pretty much self-evident. It is a signifier for a particular type of gadget. You find all sorts of other jargon being sort of spontaneously formed in that field. And it seemed fairly self-evident to me that any specialised technical field is going to have its own terminology. We have had chunks of jargon from the spy field introduced into everyday language through, for example, the work of Jean Le Carré. For example, if I talk about a mole within an organisation, you know exactly what I mean. But before the mid-1980s and the increasing popularity of his work, nobody had heard the term, at least not outside a very specialised field. So, mutating language and using neologisms from within specialised fields outside those fields seems like a sort of logical course of progression to me. One of the things that interests me is science fiction is a form of literature. The more literary science fiction has always been heretofore written with a literary flair. And I'm thinking now of, for example, uh, George Orwell and maybe Frank Herbert. But what I think interests me is that you've taken the technical language and written hard science fiction, but you jazz up the language and give it this kind of poetic feel so that it does... it creates a science fiction literature that is very science fiction, yet very literary in a, in a literary fashion. Tell me, is this intentional or is this just something that you stumbled on? It's something I stumbled on. I should add, in terms of actual literature, I'm very much an autodidact. I don't have a formal education in fine arts or literary fiction or criticism, other than what I've actually taught myself over the years. To some extent, you can blame the British educational system, which tends to channel you into very rigorously arts or sciences from the age of about 16. As a result of which, I've sort of picked up a bit here and there and uh, applied it to what I'm doing, but without any rigorous sort of theoretical background or doing it deliberately. Tell me a little bit about drawing character from the technical language you use, because you're creating characters, and you're creating them in futures or in places that are very technical, and you're using that technical language to define the humans. Up to a point, I think characterization is a very interesting uh, question. We use what we know, the tools we've got to hand to actually draw pictures of people. Now, traditionally, I'm trying to get my head around how you'd actually go about characterization in a traditional mode, as distinct from what I do. I think it's very much a case of what the writer is interested in is what the writer observes, and what the writer observes is what they use as hooks in which to put across somebody's character. I'm probably looking at somewhat different aspects of what people do or how they behave than a writer with less of a technical and more of an artistic bent. For example, something I've noticed in my own writing is I tend to have difficulty describing pastoral or natural scenes or birdsong or, in some cases, gestural stuff. I'm actually fairly crude at that side of things because it's not something to which I pay an awful lot of attention in everyday life. One German critic who really didn't like Accelerando at all said that it was a novel by a nerd for nerds, and to some extent he's actually hit the nail on the head there. I want to talk about the Bob Howard books. What made you decide to combine Lovecraftian monsters and espionage? Well, to some extent, it's a rewriting of a novel I wrote in the mid-1990s that really wasn't terribly saleable. I've had a yen to do supernatural stuff for some time. 
my first stab at it in the mid-1990s, it was what I wrote immediately before the book that became Singularity Sky, and I'm not going to dig it up and republish it for reasons that will become obvious. I set out to try and write a hard science fiction vampire novel, that is, come up with a rationale for vampirism. Then I began asking myself questions such as, if you have real vampires running around, then what are the government authorities, the police and so forth going to do about them? And I realised I'd actually opened an entire can of worms because, you know, I don't really believe in uh, the lone vampire hunter Van Helsing wandering around with a uh, Gladstone bag full of uh, wooden stakes and a mallet to deal with them. This is the sort of thing that in the 20th century we are likely to see government agencies set up to deal with. And once they start trying to hunt vampires, it's only a matter of time before they form a, a Ways and Means Committee to try and decide what they can do with vampires. That particular novel didn't go terribly far, because I sort of changed direction halfway through. But I had sort of set up this, in, this covert intelligence agency dealing with the supernatural as part of it. And then I decided, after writing Singularity Sky, which was a fairly traditional space opera in some respects, what the hell, I wanted to have some fun. So I just basically had this character, Bob, and I thought, hang on, what happens if I drop a character out of a Dilbert cartoon? A sandal-wearing computer geek who um, reads Slashdot online and is into kebabs and maybe smokes dope, and for no reason that's readily apparent at first, he's being conscripted by the intelligence services. And it's very much a chalk and cheese. He's absolutely not the character you'd want on the inside of an intelligence agency, but they have to put up with him. It was, to some extent, a situational comedy initially. You'll see the tone of uh, the Atrocity Archives changes about 20,000 words in as uh, it acquires a plot and acquires a skeleton. But up till that point, to some extent, I was just working out what Bob would be doing within that organisation and how he'd react. Tell us a little bit about the background of this with, the, with regards to Alan Turing. And... Ah, Alan Turing's an interesting character. One of the MacGuffins I hit on for the Laundry books was a fairly old chestnut that's been used before in now fantasy the, or science fiction. Now, the Laundry is the service for which Bob Howard works, the kind yes. of the supernatural... The supernatural sluts. intelligence service. In this universe, magic is effectively a branch of applied mathematics. Quite a few mathematicians sort of are of the opinion that theorems and mathematical proofs have an abstract existence of their own. There is some sense in which they are more real than the world we live in. I decided to take them literally. There are a multitude of universes, and there is, of course, the universe of pure platonic mathematics, and when you solve certain theorems, it will set up echoes there, and there may be creatures in other universes that are listening for these echoes. One interesting thing that occurred to me, a logical corollary of this, is computers are machines that can be used for doing mathematical theorem proving very, very rapidly on an automated basis. So you then get the idea that magic would have been relatively primitive, relatively crude, quite hard to do up until the 1940s, at which point it would have been systematised. Now, Alan Turing is an interesting figure. He's mostly known these days, mostly remembered publicly for the Turing test for de determining whether or not a machine intelligence is functionally equivalent to a human being. But during World War II, he 
had a very important role in the British intelligence services on code breaking. He subsequently, well, he was homosexual, he was outed in the 1950s and persecuted, and eventually is believed to have committed suicide by eating a cyanide-laced apple. It occurred to me that in this world, he had been involved in the first digital computers in the United Kingdom. He was uh, certainly a quintessential hacker as well as other things. I've heard from a computer, a professor of computing science who knew Turing how he would actually debug a mainframe in machine code on the fly by physically messing with its memory registers. If you were to have an agency investigating the use of magic by mathematics, he'd obviously been in the thick of it. Your work tends to reflect the concerns of socialism and, and, and tries to and discusses that more openly than you're going to find in a lot of American science fiction. Well, I'm from a very un-American political background. The United Kingdom has a completely different political map, and I think it's important to nail that down for starters. For seconds, economics and politics are fairly heavily intertwined. After all, a lot of political theories, a lot of political attitudes are shaped by people's attitude to wealth creation. And again, economics is part of that. It affects us. It's that part of politics that affects us directly. When one is world-building... In science fiction, I'm deeply suspicious of taking it for granted that the future will be just like the present. There may be reflections of the past in the future and of the present, but I need to ask the question of, if you have a future where things happen like so-and-so, how did it get there? Given various constraints, how will we live? For example, there's currently a lot of discussion of peak oil, of the idea that growing demand for oil is outstripping the rate at which new oil fields are being discovered. One of the things that needs asking in science fiction, for example, is what will it be like to live in a world where a gallon of gas costs at least 10 US dollars, possibly 20 US dollars? To some extent, I'm living in a laboratory for it right now. Last time I filled up my car, this being Scotland, it cost me approximately 9 US dollars per US gallon. So, but... Um, that's, by the way, of being an example of this. You expect it to have unforeseen effects, or rather effects that aren't immediately obvious. For example, living in a suburb becomes very, very expensive when you're paying $10 a gallon for petrol. Living in a city centre suddenly becomes quite desirable, as does living very, very close to your place of work. Again, the sort of uh, shopping experience you have, the big out-of-town um, developments, the strip malls, places like Walmart, they rely on cheap fuel. So asking what the implications of expensive fuel are is one of the things science fiction should be doing. And when you unwrap it as a problem, it's actually an intensely political question because it affects the way we live, it affects the way we spend our money, it affects the way we work for a living, it affects our expectations of what constitutes the good life, what constitutes wealth. If you summed up a contemporary lifestyle in terms of the retail price index, the basket of goods on which you calculate prosperity from the 1880s, we would look poverty-stricken. I mean, when was the last time you went out and bought a cast-iron stove or a ton of coal? Not recently. Absolutely. And so our definition of wealth changes over time. Again, somebody in the 1960s wouldn't have recognised the laptop computer I've got as anything more than, I guess, a fancy typewriter substitute. Nevertheless, there's quite a lot of us 
certainly me, poor fool that I am, who's probably spent more a year on computer equipment than on cars, which would have been completely unforeseen back in the 1940s when the chairman of IBM was saying perhaps the United States needed as many as four computers, or in the late 1970s when the chairman of digital was saying, you know, nobody in their right mind would need a computer at home. And yet, if you look inside your mobile phone, you'll find a computer today, and it's getting hard to exist without a mobile phone, at least in the UK. Let's talk a little bit about economics itself as a science, because if economics is a science, then you can speculate it upon developments within economics as science fiction, can't you? Up to a point, I'm not sure about economics as a science. That's a weasel term. Like archaeology, in economics you can't necessarily repeat an experiment or carry out a double blind. Archaeology actually destroys its subject material as it unearths it. Economics, you can't simply take country A and country B and arbitrarily say, let's see what the effects are of jacking up the price of fuel to $100 a gallon in country B. So, while it has some of the attributes of a science, in that we can generate models, we can speculate on their basis, we can see if the facts conform to them. It's not an experimental science. But it's a science that utilizes new technologies. For example, computing technologies have completely transformed our economic system. Oh, yeah. One could argue they've screwed it up as well, because uh, you have, for example, things like the meltdown on the stock exchange in 1987, which, as I understand it, was largely caused by rather primitive expert systems, which had been programmed, you know, to keep an eye on the market. If the market begins to tank, sell. And, you know, when that happens, the market tanks. So tell us a little bit about how you use economic themes in your science fiction. To a greater or lesser extent, it's there all along. One of the interesting issues in Accelerando is it's a novel that examines the effects of the introduction of much stronger than human intelligences, intelligences that are basically superhuman in their ability to deal with problems. Now, one of the nastier side effects of this is human beings can't effectively compete in a marketplace with intelligences that are just fundamentally smarter than they are. Um, it starts out with an entrepreneur who's effectively taking the whole open source free software thing and doing much the same sort of stuff as Cory Doctorow, only much, much more so. I should add, this was an eerie coincidence because I invented Manfred before I ever met Cory. And it goes on for a couple of generations until we're at a stage where economic activity is dominated by artificial intelligences, in many cases with robot bodies or other minions. And these intelligences are fundamentally better at negotiating than humans are. They can grasp and emulate the totality of a human mind within their own imagination and figure out what manoeuvres to make to get the human on the other side of a table to do whatever it is that they want. I also speculated about a type of economic activity. This was pure speculation on my part, I should add, which is not actively compatible with human consciousness. There is some question as to what consciousness actually is. Daniel Dennett's had a fair go at this one in Consciousness Explained for other cognitive scientists working on it. But there's some suggestion that consciousness is actually a narrative we apply to events after they've taken place. That it's sort of a cognitive kludge on top of the human brain. It's the last thing that we are aware of, if anything. It's a journal of what we've just done rather than 
a uh, imaginary homunculus in the driving seat in our brain. You can imagine types of negotiation going on such that consciousness is actually a handicap. I think I've sort of talked myself into a corner here. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the autonomous corporations that that are essentially become antagonists to the human race, the existence oh. of the human race. Well, this is happening with us already. Corporations are, it can be argued, the first form of viable working artificial intelligence. You establish a corporation, it has a charter, a constitution, with a set of rules that must be followed. Um, Non-compliance with the rules isn't really an option for the directors who can be either sacked or even prosecuted for not maximising shareholder value or pursuing the other goals of the corporation. There has been quite a lot of attention recently in the alternative media, certainly with films like The Corporation, that examine whether or not the behaviour of these legal entities, which do actually have legal personhood in a very real sense, is compatible with human society. There's a strong case that large corporations behave in a manner that in a human being would be considered sociopathic. Now, if you take these business methods, another fad we have currently is that of the standards and quality management. Uh, for example, ISO 9000, the idea that every activity within a company, within a company's sphere, should be codified in such a way that the employees who are carrying it out are merely effectively tools rather than having to do something creative so that if they're run over by a bus or killed in an auto accident, they can't be replaced. This looks like an obvious step towards automating the entire thing to me. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, you don't need human beings at all to run a company. You just need the company and a bunch of autonomous uh, software components. And if the company sort of walks like a sociopath and quacks like a sociopath, is it a sociopath? Certainly the individuals working for it may not be sociopaths if they're human, but then we're into Searle's Chinese room paradox. And I'm inclined to suggest the answer to it is that there's an abstract level at which the corporation is an intelligence and an entity in its own right, and by their behavior we should judge them. And this, these corporations that are currently being run by software components known as boards of directors could pretty soon be replaced by software components running on super-fast uh, cooled chips. I don't know how soon this is going to happen, but it's worth speculating about. Certainly, one has to question the degree to which management at the high level of today's corporations deserve their remuneration, what they're actually doing. Um, what they're actually doing is actually information exchange within the company, trying to optimize internal allocation of resources and trying to pursue the company's goals. We've seen a situation over the past 20 years or so well, more than 20 years ago, the blue-collar working uh, workers, the manual workers, the unskilled workers, were to some extent subjected to a process whereby they were competing with people in third-world countries. A lot of labour was outsourced. Over the past decade, we've seen the situation where the white-collar workers and even middle management have been jumped into the same... Ju well, thrown into the same situation, where their jobs are being outsourced to India or China, where they're competing in a global market, where they are effectively treated as interchangeable components rather than as skilled professionals. If you follow this to its logical conclusion, you end up with the same happening to the board of directors. That's a fascinating concept and not, uh, not happy. Tell us a little bit about the economic themes in the Merchant Princess series. This is a fantasy novel, and give us the setup. Uh, Miriam Beckstein. 
Okay, the setup for the Merchant Princes is we live in a multiverse. There are many parallel universes out there. There exists a family of people with a recessive genetic trait that allows them to travel to another universe. Um, they can actually travel to more than one, but in the first instance there's only one other that they know of, and trying to find a route through to another universe is actually pretty risky. You might just vanish and not reappear. So they have a moratorium on trying to explore too far. Now, the one way in which this is a non-standard premise within science fiction is that this clan of closely related individuals with the ability to travel to another timeline do not live in our timeline, they live in a much more primitive one. One where the Dark Ages were very dark, where they have pretty much clawed their way to a high medieval society, but they're probably about four or five centuries behind us. And the eastern seaboard of, the, of North America is basically colonised by this sort of high medieval society, sort of as, as the Vikings might have evolved. Um, I mean, let us not forget the Vikings became, in time, the Norman French. And um, it is from this background that the world walkers of the clan have uh, sprung. And they've set up a trade empire, because they found a way over into our universe. When they first did so, about 300 years ago, the differences weren't huge. There was a different language, but all told, back in 1700 or thereabouts, North America wasn't that alien. It was just a foreign country and rather different. The changes really began around the 1850s with the uh, transcontinental telegraph and then the railways. It has reached a situation by the year 2000 where in their own world, the clan are the only people who can get a parcel from one side of North America to the Chinese-derived empire on the other side in less than six weeks. As for what they do in our world, well, they can't move parcels terribly fast, but they can make a very valuable parcel disappear in, say, Mexico and reappear somewhere north of the border. So this gives them the power to smuggle drugs and other contraband across the border without having to ever encounter law enforcement or border security. Absolutely. And in their own world, they have the ability to uh, transmit, for example, trade di trade secrets or private correspondence from one side of a continent to another in conditions that are best described as medieval, where the odds against a given letter reaching its destination are probably 50-50, and it will take weeks or months normally. As a result of which, they've sort of clawed their way up to a position of rather tenuous, rather exposed, but extremely rich power. Um, they are the Medicis of their own world. They're trying to uh, marry into the monarchy, or rather the monarchy is trying to marry into them, but they have enemies. And in our world, they have to keep as low a profile as they can, because as far as the government is concerned, they're drug smugglers. So what you've created here is an invasion of a 13th century economy with the tools of a 20th century economy. Oh yes, and they're having real difficulty adjusting to that. The first novel opens when Miriam, who's been brought up in New York, discovers that she has this ability to uh, travel to another world. I shouldn't say how she ended up in New York as a baby, but uh, that's how she ended up. And she doesn't particularly like the status of women in a rather medieval society. She doesn't particularly like the way that she's discovered all her relatives are drug smugglers, in effect, she decides there's got to be a better business angle for them to follow. And um, on this hinges several catastrophes. Because it's not that easy to get out of a third world development trap. 
So what? tell us a little bit about the this clash of economic cultures that you've created in your fantasy. It's worth remembering that Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations is nearly 300 years old as a book. Before that, most people, when they thought of economics, they didn't think of it in terms of a division of labor, nor did they think of it in terms of a positive sum game whereby trade is beneficial to everyone. They tended to think of it more in terms of land is valuable because the more land you have, the more food you can grow. Mineral resources are valuable because the more mineral resources you have, the more you can get. Taking food or mineral resources from other people gives you more wealth, but it's a a zero-sum or negative-sum game. If somebody else loses, somebody gains, and vice versa. There's also the development trap aspect of it here. If you have a medieval society, about 90% of the labour is going just on keeping people fed. There is no surplus with which to educate people, to build roads, to build, introduce better farming techniques to feed more people. It's very, very hard to bootstrap yourself out of that kind of situation. And it's even harder if you don't have the concept of trade in the modern sense, if you're not even sure about having a stable currency. Um, around the time I was writing this, shortly thereafter, I'd ran across Neil Stevenson's Baroque Cycle, which... Um, is a rather monumental work that examines effectively the birth of the modern in our world. And it's surprising how much stuff happened between 1650 and 1750. Stock exchanges were formed, newspapers were published, never mind the steam engine being invented and uh, a lot of other technical innovation. We also had the birth of a scientific method and of modern economics. It all came at about the same time, and I think to some extent they were intimately related. If you take a world that has none of this and start trying to mess around with business models, things can get very, very hairy very fast when people who are always one harvest away from starvation think that you're trying to rock the boat and do something new. So how does this clash of the economic cultures play out? And and what entertains me is that you have a great uh, crime story going on in, in this book as well. Well, I'm not sure how much to give away, but by book three it's fairly obvious that Miriam's attempts at innovation, she's attempted to set up a new business, she's attempted to convince the clan that they can make money through technology transfer from an advanced society to a poor one by introducing education and building mines and roads and modernising. Her attempts to convince them to do this have met with, shall we say, a bit of pushback. And it's not just from within the clan, where people whose existing source of wealth, their ability to carry goods and services between worlds, is threatened directly by her. There's also pushback from the traditional aristocracy outside of the clan, and all they can see is a bunch of Johnny-come-latey nouveau riche types who are threatening them and trying to horn in on the monarchy. And by book four, this generates a really large-scale explosion with very, very ugly results. One of the things that I found interesting is the idea of introducing these kind of ideas like legal, legally limited corporations into a somewhat Tolkien-esque world. Tolkien never found much time to worry about how things were, were put together in his fantasy, who, who made the money. You've spent the majority of your time worrying just about that. What, what made you take that focus? If I can criticize Tolkien and his approach, Professor Tolkien, while a very eminent scholar, was not 
trying necessarily to create a believable world. He was trying to create a legend, a set of, I guess, creation myths for the British Isles, the matter of Britain. To that end, he was dealing with the stuff of myth, the stuff of legend. And it's always interesting to note, if you go back to, for example, Homer and the Homeric myths, the Iliad and the Odyssey, how little attention um, the doings of a hero... Well, while focusing on the doings of heroes and the scheming of Odysseus, he doesn't pay any attention to what's happening much back home, who's farming, who's fishing, you know, where all this stuff they're playing for is coming from. It just struck me that there's all this stuff is taken for granted, yet this is a real matter of civilization. It's not about a few heroes with swords and plumed helmets bashing it out in front of the city walls. It's about agricultural production and about mining and about all the little me- all the little mechanics of civilization that go together to eventually give us running water and antibiotics. So one thing that interests me is that humans are part of economic systems in the same way that atoms are a part of physical systems. And you play with this kind of concept of plugging them in and out of these various economic systems, don't you? Yes, that's uh, it's an interest of mine. I wouldn't say it's the only preoccupation by a long way. You put your finger on the espionage and uh, crime aspects earlier, but um, it seems to me to be a field that's been insufficiently examined in science fiction. Space opera, for example, its focus on great Napoleonic space navies uh, battling it out by night, rarely pays too much attention to what they're fighting for, or why, or who go, or who pays for them. And once you begin thinking of things in these terms, it's rather hard to sort of go back to taking it all for granted. Let's talk about space opera. Wilson Tucker defined space opera as being the hacky equivalent of horse opera back in 1945. We're told that you're one of the proponents of new space opera. Tell us what old space opera was to you and what new space opera is to you. Well, um... Space opera as a term began being rehabilitated, I think, in the 1980s. I'd like to point the finger at this point at uh, editor David Hartwell, who has been a strong proponent of space opera. What did it for me was one particular book published in, I believe, 1985, Schismatrix by Bruce Sterling. That novel was simultaneously a space opera, quite quintessentially so, We have lots of scheming, we have people virtually stealing worlds, we have space pirates, we have all the MacGuffins of it, we have interplanetary warfare, and nevertheless it was so far ahead of the field that other talented writers since then have got an entire career together by just milking the ideas that were left over from that particular offering. Space opera is what you get when you start widening the frame to take in many worlds, um, possibly many solar systems, and large-scale events, and then start trying to work out what happens next. It can, at its crudest, be basically a space-going equivalent of a horse opera. It offers the scale and scope to paint with a broad brush and also to do fine detail. Another person who really began triggering a revived interest in space opera was Ian Banks, with his novel Consider Phlebas in 1985-86, where... He actually has a spaceship chase another spaceship inside a much larger one. He did that deliberately, he says, so that nobody could film it. Um, This was in the days before computer graphics came along. 
but there's just the uh, pure jo uh, joie de vivre of uh, having the ability to use large scale, deploy large scale stuff. Science fiction seems to have sort of acquired a bit, a bit more of a narrow focus during the 1960s and 70s, and I think to some extent the new space opera is just a reaction against that. Okay, well, tell us what you're doing with your new space opera. You describe Singularity Sky as sort of a space opera. In what way is it a space opera, and in what ways is it not a space opera? Well, hell, it's got a Ruritanian navy in space and a space battle, so I suppose it probably qualifies. Iron Sunrise was a bit more of a space opera in so far as, in addition to spies, it has a villainous conspiracy to take over an entire solar system, a cover-up of a war crime that involved the destruction of an entire planet, and um, a climax set on board an interstellar liner. These tend to be some of the preoccupations of space opera. I'd rather not talk about the next novel of that ilk that I do, but one aspect of space opera tends to be the travelogue. You tend to get an attempt to portray the universe as being much, much bigger than just one planet, usually by uh, shuttling the hapless protagonist from, uh, from planet A to port B until um, their feet fall off. There may well be other ways of doing it, and I certainly want to explore them. Another indicator of space opera is, of course, the big space battles. Also, your interplanetary or, inter or interstellar empires or other political forms that span solar systems. To some extent, it's become a definition based on scale rather than necessarily content. Um, certainly, you will find much more diverse and interesting elements in the new space opera than you would have found in the old ones. One of the things that interests me is the way that space battles have been redefined by recent fiction. I'm thinking there's a particularly good one in uh, Alistair Reynolds' Redemption arc, I believe, where they're dropping things in one another's paths. They're not even firing anything. They just leave something behind that the other thing has to avoid. So tell us a little bit about some of the tricks that you and other writers are using to jazz up the, the space battle to get beyond the World War II air battle model. Or even Napoleonic navies in space. Napoleonic navies there's, in space. There's a couple of interesting things that crop up when you start thinking about space travel for real. The first point that's worth noting is, unlike a naval battle or an air battle, there is no horizon in space. What this means, there's virtually nothing to obscure the output from a spacecraft, you know, its energy output of a rocket, for example, at anything less than light years of range. You have time in your favour. If somebody is light hours away, they won't see what you're doing for many hours to come. But vacuum doesn't absorb light. There is no horizon there. Anything you do is going to be done under the uh, gaze of your enemy. A second issue is energy. One of the things that science fiction has traditionally uh, tap-danced around is the problem that, unfortunately, interplanetary travel is ferociously expensive in terms of energy. Interstellar travel is even worse. To accelerate a one kilogram, that's roughly two pound mass, to about 40% of the speed of light, and then back down to stationary, takes about the same energy output as a 20 megaton hydrogen bomb. To do this to a human being, multiply by 50. You know, it's the equivalent of a small World War III just to move one person to 40% of the speed of light and then back down to stationary again. So the sort of amounts of energy being thrown around for any plausible interstellar drive are absolutely phenomenal. And by the same token, just drop something in front of a, far of a 
fast, slow and light spaceship, and if it doesn't dodge it, there's going to be a very, very big bang indeed. Recently we've seen concerns over the space shuttle being hit by bits of debris, flecks of paint or loose screws from other spacecraft, which carry about the same amount of energy as a rifle bullet, even if they're barely visible. It's much, much worse, many thousands of times worse, if you're travelling at significant fractions of the speed of light. Finally, one of the things that really bugged me, and which I had in mind when I began writing Singularity Sky, is there's an implicit assumption in much space opera that when you have interstellar travel, the various factions will be at a roughly equivalent stage of development. You get this implicitly in Star Trek, with its Cold War era equivalent, the uh, Klingons or Romulans versus Federation. They're still flying spaceships that they can that can recognise each other. In Singularity Sky there is a space battle. We have the equivalent of a Napoleonic Ruritanian navy running into what to them might as well have been a nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. You know, suddenly their ships begin sinking and they can't even see the enemy. And also you use time as an element too. I thought that was one of the most fascinating aspects. Explain how you use time as an element in space battles. As I mentioned earlier, there's no visible horizon. However, light travels at a finite speed. If you've ever been to an air show and seen a fast jet going overhead, you'll have barely heard it before it was on top of you. In much the same way, if you have spaceships that are manoeuvring at very high relativistic speeds, close to the speed of light, you will have very little warning of what they're actually doing, because by the time the light reaches you that shows you what they're actually doing they will be barely behind it they may be 10 light hours away when they try a particular maneuver but they'll be less than an hour away when you see the maneuver happening so you can have interesting issues here with your command and control loop if you're trying to track somebody who's a long way away traveling very very fast you're never going to be quite sure what they're up to right now you're going to be to some extent working blind it's almost as if modern jet fighters with their near supersonic capabilities had to rely on hearing to hear where their enemies were. That's a fascinating uh, example. The nearest analogy in current day warfare is actually submarine warfare. Uh, how is that an analogy? I mean, okay, if a submarine moves or emits noise, other submarines can hear it, they can spot it. It doesn't matter how far away you are. You can hear a submarine a long way away if it's actually spinning its propellers or going somewhere. Also, you can hear somebody else pinging with sonar a lot further away than they can actually hear an echo back from you. So if you're making noise or emitting stuff or manoeuvring, you're visible. By the same token, if you're a fair way away when you make that noise, it will take some time to arrive at the uh, other submarine, at the listener. Now, that's not so much a factor today... But there is some work on, for example, supercavitation in torpedoes that means that uh, by the time you actually hear where they are, you may be somewhat out of date because they're travelling at a fairly high fraction of the speed of sound in water. One thing I think that you do, you've done in a couple of your novels is you use science fiction ideas to explore uh, changing sexual identities. You did this in Accelerando and you do it in Glasshouse. Tell us what you do and why. Glasshouse uh, had its origins in a fit of pique. I had, I'm a fan of an American writer, John Varley, and I'd been seriously waiting for the third concluding one of his uh, Nine Worlds trilogy that starts with Steel Beach. And uh, so it was that a couple of years ago, new John Varley novel, and it was about five years overdue, and I was really looking forward to it. 
and I was expecting Steel Town Blues that he had allegedly been working on for some years, and instead what came out was a Heinlein juvenile, Red Thunder. Now, Red Thunder is actually a very, very good novel of its kind, but I was a bit disappointed because there are many, many people writing Heinlein juveniles, but only one John Varley. So I got annoyed and thought, hell, I should roll my own. It went a little bit off course, but acquired an interesting identity of its own. Now, one of the things he's been doing all along has been um, gender-bending, gender gender-role explorations, and it just occurred to me I needed to actually write one. I wouldn't say it's a real obsession of mine. It's just one of the things, though, that has clearly changed over the past couple of centuries is our perception of gender and our perception of gender roles. You can see this most clearly if you look to the Middle East today, for example, to the role of women in Iran or Afghanistan. But we don't have to look that far from home. I was somewhat startled to realise when I began doing some research that the right women in Iran today have significantly more civil rights than they did in Victorian England, or Victorian America for that matter. And our attitudes to people on the basis of race, of gender of sexuality really does change over time. One could also argue age, because uh, we live in an age which has effectively invented the teenager, a new period of life that, in many respects, didn't exist a hundred years ago. You were either a child or an adult. This has some interesting economic implications as well. It's something that's been implicit all along, but we we don't expect children to earn a living. To some extent, childhood as we know it was a construct of the Victorian upper classes between the 1830s and 1860s that was picked up by the, low, by the middle classes and finally the lower classes as they had enough disposable income that they didn't have to send their seven-year-olds out to work. If you read descriptions of Victorian uh, in d- steam-age mills, you had sort of four-year-olds and six-year-olds working the machinery because their parents had to set them to work because otherwise they couldn't feed them child labour was not merely common, it was unremarked on and expected. When the first laws were introduced in England, limiting working hours to 60 hours a week and requiring people to have at least half a day off, they were opposed by members of Parliament who were mill owners on the grounds that, you know, where would they get the children to operate their machinery? How do you think that will play out economically in the future? What I see is in more prosperous countries, we take longer to mature. A lot of people are behaving not like teenagers but like young adults who haven't done the settling down thing quite late in life, into their 40s and 50s. Meanwhile, children tend to stay at home longer. They stay in... they study for longer. In Germany, it's not unusual to find people who are still at university in their late 20s and still living with their parents. One of the things that contributes to this is the relatively high cost of housing... Another contributory factor is the need for education in the workplace. A lot of jobs today simply can't be done by somebody who's not actually fairly highly educated. Whether this is necessary or not is an open question, but it's the way things are. You can't get a good job if you don't have a university degree. And the result is it takes much longer before somebody can actually join the workforce, much less be independent. And we have a cultural niche for people who are beyond childhood but but not fully independent yet. This is the teenager. And so our teens are sort of stretching out longer and longer. I think we also have to bear in mind changes in life expectancy as well. 
a woman born in Japan this year has a normalized life expectancy of 102 years. This is simply because this simply means that 50% of them will die over the next 102 years, not that they're going to live forever. But we have rising life expectancies. Back when the first pension was introduced for workers, the state pension in in England, rather, back around 1904, about 2% of the workforce would live to be 65 and to retire on a pension, and most of those would die within the next two years. Today, virtually everybody expects to live to be 65, and the average life of a pensioner after retirement is close to 20 years. That has some big economic implications, and it will have greater implications in the future, won't it? I am 42. I have grown up with the idea that the retirement age was 65, but I would be astonished if people of my cohort will be retiring before they're 70, maybe 75. And this assumes that we have no major breakthroughs in life prolongation medication. The one thing that will really set the cat among the pigeons is if somebody really does come up with the stem cell-derived elixir of youth, because at that point, everybody's going to want some time off at some point, but nobody's going to be able to stop working for good if they can live for a couple of hundred years after they turn 65. One thing I should add at this point, though, is even if we do see medical breakthroughs that give us indefinite youthfulness, it doesn't mean immortality. There have been some studies of mortality statistics that suggest that even if all the existing degenerative diseases went away, if cancer went away, if heart disease went away, if old age went away, if we were all physically 20-year-olds for an indefinite period, we would still only have a life expectancy of 600 years because murder, suicide, accidents would eventually catch us. 600 years, that's a long time to be uh, working for the man. Oh, yes. And the implications of that? One of the things we take for granted is that you work. Now, there is an interesting question here. Do you work to live or do you live to work? A lot of people in the United States and also in the UK have seemed to have the idea that you live to work, that work is the only way of validating your existence, if anything, that holiday is some, taking holidays or vacations or sabbaticals is somehow almost shameful. Uh, we really have to get away from that because it's poisoning our social wellspring. I'm not saying this from any kind of sort of socialist point of view, but I think the cult of efficiency and the cult of work, there is something deeply pathological and quasi-religious about it, rather than it necessarily being a healthy way to organize a civilization. And finally, I'd like to talk about the way that you can use science fiction to explore the present and the past via the future. You do this in Glasshouse. Tell us a little bit about how you do that and why, what you find when you do so. Well... I'd like to start with a couple of definitions. In general, all fiction, uh, be it mainstream literary, be it science fiction, be it romance, be it spy thrillers, whatever, it is about exploring the human condition. It's very hard to conceive of a work of fiction that doesn't actually have human beings in it. Uh, I can think of very few works that did this, and even fewer of them that did it successfully. So we're talking about the human condition, and in science fiction and fantasy... We're talking about human existence under conditions that we haven't actually experienced or can't experience. You know, there's magic about or we're on another world. It's pushing the envelope, as it were. So, bearing in mind we're talking about the human condition from different aspects and different angles, it's probably no surprise to find that science fiction has historically reflected preoccupations about the present on the future. 
I mentioned Bruce Sterling's Schismatrix earlier. He published it around 1985. It should be no surprise that the political aspect of it is dominated by a Cold War in space between two superpowers. To some extent, from the point of view of the uh, unfortunate small fry caught in the gears between them on either side of a Cold War, but it's very much a Cold War novel. Again, William Gibson's Neuromancer, the quintessential cyberpunk novel, uh, we have mirror shades, we have lots of brand name products from large faceless multinationals pushing people about and dominating politics. These were the concerns, the political concerns of the early 1980s. Pre-globalization, it was all about multinationals, it was about the rise of Japan as an economic superpower, and the novel is riddled with it. Now, you asked me what I'm doing. Um, again, science fiction is about today's preoccupations as reflected on the future. In Glasshouse, I decided one of the things that frequently bugs me when people talk about the past is that they telescope it. For example, when we talk about the Middle Ages, from roughly 1066 to 1485, we're actually telescoping a time span that's twice as great as the span between the United States Declaration of Independence and the present day. It's ridiculous, yet we use the term Middle Ages as sort of a shorthand for this. It's an enormous expanse of time. What's our time going to look like from the other end of that conceptual telescope? especially if you bear in mind that most of what people in 700 years' time will know about us is derived from the records that we leave. A lot of our records are going to be unreadable. They're going to be locked by digital rights management software. And a lot of the records that do survive, they're going to survive because they're replicated everywhere. It's popular stuff, which means they will not necessarily be representative of the reality of our civilization. They're going to be representative of what our civilization likes to think about itself. There's an interesting book by a scholar called Matthew Sweeting called uh, Inventing the Victorians about how the early 20th century British modernists invented the current popular conception of a Victorian English, which where the reality was actually quite different from what's been handed down to us. One of the points he made is our conception of Victorian morality is quite wrong. A lot of the books on how women should behave, for example, have survived uh, with sort of obsessive hang-ups about family behaviour, sexual neurosis and so on. He points out that a lot of these books survived in libraries, typically academic libraries. But these books had, when he began examining them, not been withdrawn very often. In fact, they were written by sort of rather neurotic Victorian parsons who needed some way to work out their own headaches, and they wrote it, they were published in very small numbers, and then they went into the back shelf of the library and were forgotten for a century because nobody paid any attention to them. And so... The surviving historic record of what we think of, for example, as Guide to Victorian Etiquette or Morality may not actually reflect the reality of what it was like. And this crops up time and time again. For example, in the 1860s, in the working classes in London, it was pretty much the normal thing to cohabit for some years before marriage and possibly only to marry after having children. This is not that different from a contemporary way of life, certainly in the UK, but it's virtually airbrushed out of the... Uh, accepted historical attitude to what the Victorians were like or what they signify. They tend to signify sort of fuddy-duddy, uptight Puritan moralism, which is actually rather far from reality. 
So I began asking myself, how will the 20th and 21st century look in 700 years' time, with 700 years of bit rot between now and then? And you're going to have people telescoping the 1950s and the 2010s, because, you know, they're the same period. Early modernists, you know, sort of early spaceflight era. From 700 years' perspective, you know, that's surprisingly fine definition. Certainly we telescope periods that lasted similar lengths into just a thumbnail. For example, the Hundred Years' War between England and France we would think of in terms of a war, but that was actually a couple of lifetimes. Again, their attitude to our social life and our morality will be defined to some extent by what records survive. They're more likely to be familiar with the Da Vinci Code or Harry Potter than they are with the more accurate examinations of everyday life, or with literary fiction, or with, for example, docu social documentaries. What they'll be familiar with is the stuff that survived, and they're going to have a very, very distorted view of our present. We've been speaking with Charles Strauss with a distorted view of the future, the present, and the past. His new novel is Glass House. Thank you for speaking with us, Charles. Sure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.